You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's have a word of prayer together. Our Father, it is with great expectation and thankfulness that we come to your word. It is precious to us because it is the revelation of who you are and all that you've given to us in Christ. It is the revelation of the riches of our inheritance. We ask that you would bless this time and make it profitable to us. And as we look at your word, we pray that your spirit would be here to teach us, give us a vision of who you are and what you have done for us, and help us to walk away from here from your word changed. And we shall forever be grateful. We thank you this morning and for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's something I need to get out of the way before the sermon this morning. Yeah. <laughs> there's actually a lot of people here on a Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, I have been in Acts so long that when I started the book of Acts, I had good eyesight. And I could see you, and about three weeks ago, I was standing up here during the message. I know how, you know how your mind wanders while I'm preaching. Mine does too. And I was noticing the people in the back row, and up against the wall, I kept thinking, I can see them, and I can see that their faces are up, but I can't tell if their eyes are open or closed. <laughs> so I went down this week, and I got these, and um, this is where I'm at now. I have joined the ranks. Next, I'm going to lose my hair probably. <laughs> <laughs> Jess is nodding. <laughs> is that the order? You get glasses and then you lose your hair. We spent um, quite a bit of time trying to pick out frames. And I, I told the doctor, I said, I'm looking for something that sort of makes me look suave, debonair, <laughs> intelligent, and like a sort of a George Clooney, Tom Cruise, mild, handsome look. So after three hours of looking at frames, he... <laughs> He finally said, Jim, I'm an eye doctor, not a magician. <laughs> so we settled with these frames, and uh, it was a toss-up between these and the star-shaped pink-tinted Elton John glasses. <laughs> so I went with these because the pink wouldn't go with everything in my wardrobe for Sunday mornings. Uh, this uh, turned in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 25. This message was actually supposed to be two. And I combined what we were going to do next week with what we're doing uh, today. And so we have, I've put a lot into one message, and we need to get busy in the text as, as we're going to look at it so that we could um, fit everything in, Acts chapter 25. So we'll just get straight to work on it. Beginning in verse 6, and I'm just going to read through the end of verse 12. That's the text we're going to be looking at this morning. After he had spent not more than eight or... See, I don't need these to read up close. I can see this just fine. It's... It's this I can't see. So I'm, I promise you I'm not going to be one of those pastors who does this all the time, takes them on and puts them on and takes them off. And I had a, just on an aside real quick before we get into the text, <laughs> I had a Bible school prof who this is how he taught all the time. He was always playing with his glasses up and down, back and forth, taking them on, putting them off. Uh, all, I think if he didn't have glasses, his, his hands would be just glued to the side of his head all the time. I promise you I'm not going to be somebody who does that or always pushing them up the... Bridge of my nose. Okay, Acts chapter 25, verse 6. 
After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things which is true, none of those things is true of me, which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And last week I suggested that there are four things that we notice in that text. And we looked at the first one, which was the plot against Paul. Festus, after coming to the region of Judea and taking over his governorship there, he uh, met with the Jews after three days, went straight up to Jerusalem to meet with the Jews, to confer with them, to sort of appease them, to conciliate be conciliatory toward them. And the Jews asked him, we want a token of grace. We want you to bring Paul down to Jerusalem. And while they are bargaining with Festus, they are plotting Paul's assassination along the way from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And Festus, not wanting to give too much to the Jews, said, well, we'll try him, but it must be in Caesarea, on my turf, on my timetable, on my territory. So you come to Jerusalem, or come to Caesarea from Jerusalem, if you will, and we'll give him a fair trial. Well, they agreed to that. And that was the plot against Paul. Now today we look at the next three things, which is the prosecution of Paul, Paul's plea, and then Paul's appeal. The prosecution begins in verse 7. Look at it. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. They had traveled from Caesarea with Festus, sorry, from Jerusalem with Festus all the way to Caesarea. And it is on the very next day that they summon and have Paul brought in before the tribunal. I want you to imagine what Paul saw when he walked into the courtroom. And I suggested last week that I don't think the Apostle Paul had that much notice. When Festus got back, how long was it before he summoned Paul into his courtroom? The next day. Less than 24 hours, if Paul had any notice at all. And I don't think Paul had any notice at all. I think that when Festus got back in, the next day he sat on his tribunal, he summoned Paul to come in before him. And would that have struck Paul as odd to have the governor summon him? Felix had been doing it for two years, remember? Quite often Felix would have Paul come in and he would converse with him trying to get a bribe out of Paul. This was just, you know, the governor wants to see you, Paul. Oh, okay, here we go again. How many more years is Festus going to be trying to get a bribe out of me? So Paul makes his way down to the governor's residence there, to where the governor sits, sits himself, and he walks into the room, and here is Festus in all of his regalia, all of his royal robes and his position, and the, the council is there, and the court recorder is there, and all the lights are on, and everybody is standing around, and here in the middle of the room are the, Paul's accusers. Now, if you're Paul, what do you think? just got back from Jerusalem. He was gone for two weeks. He's been talking... He's been cohorting with my accusers. And you walk into the room and you stand in front of Festus and you know that this is the real McCoy because he's seated on his tribunal. And Luke says, with all of his accusers standing around him. Now, do you think that was uncomfortable? Paul walks in. It's been two years since anybody's done anything with his case. And all of a sudden, like that, he's being called back into trial. 
And he's standing there, and Ananias, Ishmael, elders, and the chief priests, and the Sadducees, all these guys that had tried to rip him to shreds in the Sanhedrin two years earlier, all these men who had brought accusations against him two years earlier before Felix, they all sort of gather around the Apostle Paul, and Festus says to them, go ahead, give us your accusations. That's kind of a tense situation, isn't it? You're standing there while all the, the buzzards kind of come and stand around you. All the wolves sort of close in around you. And you got this feeling that Festus has been talking to the accusers. And all of a sudden, after being put on a shelf for two years, I'm being stampeded to trial. You'd start to get a little nervous. I think you would. And so they bring, Luke says, many and serious accusations against the Apostle Paul. Notice that Luke doesn't tell us what the accusations were. Do you notice that? You know why he doesn't tell us what the accusations were? Because they were the same ones that were brought up before Felix. It was a matter of public record. It was a matter of court record what the accusations were. They would have never been able to get away with changing the accusations. And so they just raised the same ones that came up before Felix. Do you remember what the three accusations were? I drilled these into you for week after week after week for this purpose. Remember what they were? The first one, he is guilty of sedition. Stirring up dissension amongst all the Jews everywhere. He's guilty of sedition. The second, second one was sectarianism. He didn't want, he kind of wanted to say it, but he didn't want to say it. Sectarianism, right? He is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And the third one was sacrilege. He even tried to defile the temple by bringing a Greek into it. Those were the three charges. They were the same three charges they brought up against Felix. They raised them again here against the Apostle Paul. But what you want you to notice is how Luke says they had no proof. They were raising all these serious and many accusations, I think what they did is they probably took the same three accusations against Paul and they probably put some heat on them. Maybe brought up specific instances and, and, and times and dates and places and sort of tried to make them sound oh so horrible. This is the guy who always, everywhere, everywhere he goes, he's defiling things and, and leading people astray and he is causing sedition and stirring people up. Makes it real hot, real violent. They couldn't prove a thing. You know why? Who were the who were the witnesses? Do you remember who the witnesses were to the crime? They were Jews, but where were they from? Asia, in the temple. It was the Jews from Asia who grabbed Paul and said, "This is the man who stirs up people everywhere and preaches against our law, against the temple, and against the prophets." So they grabbed a hold of Paul. It was the Jews from Asia. And remember, at Paul's defense before Felix, he said there were some Jews from Asia who should have been here to bring accusation against me. Well, where are the Jews from Asia? They're back in Asia. They don't have any witnesses. The accusations are cold. The case has gone cold. The witnesses are cold. You couldn't round those people up to save your life if your life depended on it. And so they're bringing many serious accusations against Paul, but they couldn't prove any of it. Friends, what I want you to notice here is how insane people get in their rejection of Christ and their hatred for Christ. With all that needed to be dealt with, with Festus, and with what Felix had done with the revolt and the oppression, with all that had to be dealt with with the economy and with the condition of the Jews and the oppression of the Jews and the, the murder and the, and the abduction of property from all of these innocent Jews, with all of that on the table, what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about Paul. How, look how insanely pathetic they are in their sin, blinded by their sin. But that is that is dead people in their sin. And you almost have to feel sorry for such people, don't you? You almost have to feel sorry that people actually hate God and hate His Word and hate His Christ and hate His messengers that much. But you know people that are like that. They're just insanely trapped in their sin. They make the same decisions over and over again. Slaves to it. Slaves to their bitterness. Slaves to their hatred. 
but that's lost man, darkened in our understanding, dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God. That's these men. And so they're unleashing all of this vehement hatred on the Apostle Paul. That's the prosecution. Now I want you to notice Paul's a plea, or Paul's plea. Verse 7 is the prosecution. Verse 8, while Paul said in his own defense, now Paul didn't have a lawyer with him, and nobody to represent his case. He's just like he is in all of these trials, representing himself. The high, some of the highest courts on the land. He's representing himself. Paul said in his own defense, verse 8, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Notice those three things. The law of the Jews, the temple, or against Caesar. What does that tell you about the accusations that they raised? They were the same three, weren't they? How do I know that? Because Paul's defense doesn't change. He says, I have offended, I have done nothing of offense against the law of the Jews. What accusation is he defending himself and denying there? The law of the Jews. Which one of those three was a violation of Jewish law? It was sectarianism, right? I have done nothing of offense against the temple. What accusation is he denying there? Sacrilege. And I have done nothing of offense against Caesar. What accusation is he denying there? Sedition. All three of them. Paul says, I have done nothing against the Jews, nothing against the temple, and nothing against Caesar. It's their word against his word. They have raised the accusations without proof, without witnesses, without anything to substantiate it. And Paul just has to simply say, I am innocent. Paul, what is your plea? Innocence, Your Honor. I've done none of these things. Now, what is Festus going to do? If Festus did not realize it before now, he certainly sees now why it is that Felix put this case on the shelf for two years. If he lets Paul go, which justice says he has to do, he infuriates the Jews. He doesn't want to infuriate the Jews. He's trying to do the Jews a favor. He wants to win favor with the Jews. He wants the Jewish leaders to finally step up to the plate, start putting down some of the revolts and the rebellion and the sedition that was going on, and to mend this broken relationship with Rome. And if he releases the Apostle Paul, since Paul is number one on their priority list, if he releases the Apostle Paul, he accomplishes the opposite of what he wants to do, which is to appease them. But can he punish Paul? He can't punish Paul either. Why? Because Lysias' declaration, Felix's declaration, and all of the court records show there's no witnesses, no proof, just baseless accusations. His innocence is there for everybody to see. It's a matter of public record. So Festus finds himself on the horns of the same dilemma. And he needs an out. I need to find a way to deal with this guy without offending the Jews and without offending Rome. So he's caught between a rock and a hard place. What does he do? Verse 9 is Paul's appeal. Look at it. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Now listen, you'll notice it doesn't read Festus wanting to do justice for Paul. It doesn't say Festus wanting to do Paul a favor. It doesn't say Festus wanting to accurately represent the law and do justice. What is Festus's motive? Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, verse 9 says, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Now listen, that's what the Jews asked him for when they were in Jerusalem, when he was in Jerusalem, you remember? They said, we're asking for a concession against Paul. You want to show us that things are good? You want to show us that you're different than Felix? Then give us a little token of grace. Give us a concession. Here it is. We want you to move the venue of the trial from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. That's all we're asking. Festus said, I'm not going to do that. We'll go back to Caesarea and we'll try him here. Well, now Festus' story has changed a little bit, hasn't it? Very first thing out of his mouth. Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand, stand trial before me on these charges? 
Why would Festus want to change the venue of the trial now? He denied it earlier, right? Why does he want to change it now? Well, after 14 years of having cocktails and hors d'oeuvres with the Jewish accusers, all of a sudden he realizes there's no way out of this predicament but to get this trial moved from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And when it was the Jewish leader's idea to move the trial, that was a bad thing because if Festus gave in to that, it would make like he was make it look like he was sort of giving up too much to the Jews. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to look like he was at the beck and call of the Jewish leaders, that they snap their fingers and he comes running. We want this, we want that, and he's there to serve it all up. He doesn't want the new governor in town to look like a puppet of the Jews. So that's why he denied that back in verses 1 through 6. Now, all of a sudden, he realizes, well, if Paul requests it, that's different, right? If Paul agrees to it or requests a trial in Jerusalem, then it would look like I was doing justice for a Roman citizen and trying to give him a fair trial, and I would be giving something to the Jews. This is this is my out. You know what Paul can see? Paul can see that he's being thrown under the bus for Festus's political expediency. That's what Paul can see. Paul can see that he's being sacrificed for the sake of doing the Jews a favor. Do you want to come up uh, to Jerusalem with me and we'll try this case there? Now, does Paul want to go to Jerusalem? Why not? You know, Paul really has three things to fear with the trial going to Jerusalem. Let me tell you what they are. First of all, Paul would have uh, to fear the murder or a plot on his life on the way from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? And he knows that only two years earlier, if it weren't for his nephew coming in and saying, Hey, Unc, there's a bunch of guys that have taken an oath to kill you, that he would have been killed on the way to the Sanhedrin only two years earlier back in Acts chapter 22 and 23. If it weren't for his nephew, Paul would have, they already plotted his life during one transport. And then while they're, while they're sort of making the deal with Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem, they're plotting his life in chapter 25 as they want him brought from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So Paul suspects, and he has every reason to believe, that they're going to be up to their old tricks and do the same thing. Once he gets out of Caesarea, Paul knows he's a dead man. And the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more dead he is. He's a dead man walking if he agrees to that. So he could fear really a, a, an assassination or a plot on his life on the way from Caesarea to Jerusalem. But he would also fear that if he did manage to get to Jerusalem, if it did manage to go to trial, if he did manage to stand before Festus as the governor in Jerusalem, he would fear a guilty verdict, wouldn't he? Because what is a guilty verdict? Now, do you think they could get a guilty verdict in Jerusalem? You know, when somebody commits a crime and they want to try the crime that was committed in the county or the city in which it was committed, a lot of times the defense lawyer will try and get the trial moved out of county, out of city, to some other jurisdiction. Why do they do that? Well, what they want is a sort of a more unbiased jury pool, right? They want a group of people to pull from that haven't been reading the newspapers and reading the Internet every day, sort of a more unbiased group of people. Well, Festus is asking Paul to agree to the exact opposite. I'd like you to take you right back into the lion's den and we'll have all the lions serve as your jury and we'll have all the lions serve as your judge and we'll have all the lions serve as your accusers. Do you think a guilty verdict is likely in a scenario like that? Sure it is. And Paul knows that. He gets back to Jerusalem. Listen, there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people who would gladly perjure themselves to see him killed. All of them would swear to any charge they brought against the Apostle Paul just to get him dead. And what is Festus going to do when he calls a trial to order if Paul manages to survive the trip and brings Paul in and witness after witness after witness stands up there and accuses Paul and says, i got other witnesses. What's Festus going to do after two dozen witnesses have come in and testified against him? You know what he's going to do? 
It's going to have to say guilty. So Paul would fear a murder or an attempt on his life on the way to Jerusalem. He would fear a guilty verdict when he got to Jerusalem. And listen, he would also fear, and most of you probably haven't thought of this, he would also fear being declared innocent at Jerusalem. You know why? Imagine that the Imagine that the case goes to trial. He survives the trip. He gets back in there. He stands trial. All these witnesses come in. And just imagine for a second that Festus is able to see through all the deception, all the smoke screens, and he decides that he doesn't want to make any more concessions to the Jews. He wants to do what is just. He wants to do what is right. And so he's going to declare the Apostle Paul innocent. And Festus says, all right, I've reached a decision. You are innocent. You are free to go. You're a free man. There's the door. Goodbye. Case adjourned. I'm free. You're free. Go. Out that door? Yep. I hereby release you from protective Roman custody. You are free to leave. And all of the Jews would be standing around the courthouse, sharpening their knives, saying, come on, Paul. Come on outside. Let's play. He doesn't want to be declared innocent in Jerusalem. He agrees to go to Jerusalem. He's a dead man on the trip. If he manages to get it, he's convicted. He's dead. If he manages to be declared innocent, he's dead. Would you like door number one, which is death? Would you like door number two, which is death? Or would you like door number three, which is death? He say, I'd kind of like a door without death behind it. I'd kind of like a door that has freedom behind it or justice behind it. That would be, is there a door number four? No, there's not. Can you think of any possible good outcome from the Apostle Paul going to Jerusalem? Neither can he. Now, I don't know if the Apostle Paul went through all of those scenarios in his mind. I had all week long to come up with those three things. I don't know if all of those went through his mind as he's standing there before Festus. But he certainly knows that these wolves that have closed in around him in Festus's courtroom want him dead. And he certainly knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem, no matter what happens, he's dead. So what does he say? Look at verse 10. Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. Paul just simply says, look, this is the proper venue for my trial. I'm a Roman citizen. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. I am standing at the center of Caesar's power in this province as a Roman citizen. This is proper. It would be improper for you to move the venue of the trial from Caesarea to Jerusalem. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I have every right to be tried. I want to be tried here. You say, no, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. This is proper right here. And those words, Caesar's tribunal, kind of a a soft rebuke to Festus, and here's why. Because as, as he says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, he is very subtly reminding Festus that Festus in this courtroom is Caesar's representative. And his number one priority in this courtroom was to protect justice, to protect the rights of Roman citizens. That's his job. To make sure that innocent citizens like Paul weren't punished for crimes they didn't commit. And to make sure that crimes that were committed were punished equitably, swiftly, and justly. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. And that is a way of saying to Felix, you ought to be looking out for my interests, not the interests of these Jews. You're not here to curry favor with them. You want to do something nice for them? Fine. Do it outside the courtroom. But this is Caesar's tribunal, and I demand justice as you are the representative for Caesar. And then Paul says, after reminding him that Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried, I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. Paul reminds him, I'm innocent. (laughs) See, there's this big elephant right in the middle. Did I not mention that? 
When Paul walked into Caesar's tribunal, there's a big elephant right in the middle of the room. And what is it? It's labeled Paul's innocence. Nobody wants to talk about that. Everybody wants to talk about the accusations. Everybody wants to talk about proper legal procedure. But nobody can get around and nobody can look at and nobody wants to deal with this big colossus in the middle of the room, Paul's innocence. Paul says, I'm innocent. As you yourself know. Now, did Festus know that? He had Lysias' letter on record that Lysias sent to Felix saying, I find nothing in the man deserving of imprisonment or death. He has Felix not dealing with the case, not passing judgment for two years because Felix knew he was innocent and he knew what Felix was up to. And then they show up in this courtroom and here it's a matter of court record. There's no witnesses, no accusation. Innocent. Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews as you also very well know. Festus, you know I'm innocent. Do what is right. Do what is just. Do your job. You're Caesar's representative. Do what you're called and you're appointed to do. Do justice. I've done no wrong to the Jews. Now, did Festus know he was innocent? Sure he did. Look at verse 18. After King Agrippa shows up, Festus is kind of giving Agrippa a rundown of the Apostle Paul. Verse 18 says, When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. You know what that is? It's an admission to Agrippa. He's done nothing wrong. The only accusations they had concerned their own religion. This isn't even a proper Roman trial. The man's not even on trial for doing anything against Rome. Festus knew he was innocent. And he says that to Agrippa. And so then Agrippa says, I want to hear the man. Chapter 26, Paul comes in and he gives his defense before Agrippa. And at the end of chapter 26, you know what Agrippa says? He would have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Why? He's innocent. Everybody knew that. But Paul appealed to Caesar. He can't go back on that. And Agrippa says, I would have released him. Agrippa showed up. Paul missed it by just a couple of days. I've always been perplexed as to why the Apostle Paul appealed to Caesar when he was an innocent man. You know why? Because he showed up in that tribunal and he saw Festus and the Jews cohorting together to throw him under the bus to mend the relationship between the two of them. It wasn't a stupid decision. It was Paul's only decision. He had to do it to save his life. I appealed to Caesar. He says, I know I'm innocent. Look at verse 12. Sorry, verse 11. If I am a wrongdoer and I've committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. If I'm a wrongdoer, if I've done anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. What Paul's saying there is this. I'm not trying to skirt justice. I'm not asking to get around Roman law. If I have done anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. I'm not trying to get out of this because somebody might say, well, you don't want to go to Jerusalem because you know that in Jerusalem you're going to get a fair trial and you'll be convicted and you don't want to be punished. And Paul's saying that's not it at all. If I've done anything that deserves death, kill me. That kind of throws down the gauntlet, doesn't it? If I've done anything deserving of death, then kill me. I don't refuse to die. Have at her. I'll put my neck down in the chopping block and pull the collar back for you. Just don't hit my finger when you come down with the axe. I don't refuse to die. I'm not trying to skirt justice. I'm asking for justice. That's what he's saying. I just want you to do the right thing. I want you to know what's implied in that statement. Notice it. If I've done anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. What the Apostle Paul is saying there is that there are some capital crimes. Do you notice that? There are some capital crimes. There are crimes that deserve death. 
Paul acknowledges that. If I've done something that is worthy of death, there are things that you can do that are worthy of being executed for. And Paul is saying, if I've done anything that deserves the capital offense, I don't refuse to die. He doesn't say, you have no right to execute me. You don't have any right to do this. He says, look, if I'm guilty of a capital crime, I will submit to capital punishment. I will submit to capital execution. You can kill me. He implies not only that there are capital crimes that are worthy of capital punishment, but the Apostle Paul acknowledges that Rome, under God, as God's ordained authority, had every right, every authority, and every responsibility to punish capital crimes with capital punishment. He's acknowledging that. You are Festus. You have it within your power. You have it within your purview. You are God's representative. You are in a position of authority. If I've done anything that deserves death, here I am. Kill me. I'm just asking for a little bit of proof before you come down with the axe. That's it. Just convict me. And look, it's not your, your responsibility and my responsibility to punish capital crimes. That is within the jurisdiction as part of God's ordained purpose for authority and for government. Romans 13 says the government wields the sword not in vain. They do so for the punishment of evildoers and for the promoting of that which is right. 1 Peter chapter 2, Romans chapter 13, the government has that responsibility. You and I have a responsibility to forgive. You and I have a responsibility to turn the other cheek. You and I have a responsibility to show grace and show mercy and show compassion. The government has no such responsibility. The government's ordained responsibility is the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That's what they are to do. If I've uh, committed anything worthy of death, Paul says, here's my neck. I'll put it down on the chopping block. I'll submit to that. I don't have a problem with that. But look at the flip side of it. He says, if nobody, if the things that these men accuse me of, if I'm not guilty of them, then you can't hand me over to them. Here's what he's saying. I'm not trying to skirt justice. I want justice. I'm asking for justice. And if I've done something worthy of death, I'll die. But if I haven't done anything worthy of death, if I'm innocent, then you cannot procedurally, legally, morally, you cannot hand me over to these men to give them a favor. Nobody can hand me over to them. Now at that point, I think the Apostle Paul knew that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die because Festus was going to see to it and the Jews were going to see to it and there was nowhere else he could turn. There was nothing else he could do. And so he says what? I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Every Roman citizen had the right of appeal. That was every Roman citizen had the right to bring their case before the emperor and to plead their case before the emperor himself. It's not something that Roman citizens just threw out there all the time. You're in court for a traffic violation. I appeal to Caesar. Uh, you're in court because you stole a Tootsie Roll on 20 hours of community service. I appeal to Caesar. That's not something that they threw around a lot. Very seldom do people do that. But in situations where they knew they were not getting a fair trial, they knew that the cards were stacked against them, they could appeal to have their case heard before Caesar. Now, who's Caesar at the time? Nero. If you know anything about Nero, you're thinking to yourself, why in the world would he appeal to stand before some sociopathical madman, insane, like Nero? And the answer is because in 60 AD, when Paul makes his appeal, that was sort of the end of Nero's golden age of rule. He hadn't quite turned into the persecuting sociopath madman that he was in 63, 64, and 65 A.D. when he sort of lost, I mean, he went postal. He started persecuting Christians. There was nothing in Nero that suggested that he was not a good emperor at this stage. 
A few years later, that would happen. So Paul is confident. I'll stand before the emperor and give my appeal before the emperor. That takes it out of the Sanhedrin's court. That takes it out of Festus's court. That takes it out of everything. And from this point forward, off to Rome he goes. He has to. Why? He's appealed before Caesar. Even Agrippa says, I can't pronounce him innocent now. He appealed to Caesar. I would have set him free, but he had already appealed to Caesar. It didn't matter now. Anything, guilty or innocent, no matter what, the next court date, the next official court date was before Nero in Rome. He's going to Rome. Now you might ask yourself, why didn't he appeal to Caesar earlier? Did you ask yourself that question? Why didn't he appeal to Caesar under Felix? After a year had gone by and he saw that there was going to be no justice and he saw that Felix had put him on the shelf and wasn't going to deal with him, why didn't he appeal to Caesar then? You know why? Do you think Paul wanted to stand before Caesar? No. He wanted to go to Rome. But if he had to stand before Caesar to get to Rome, he was fine with that. But it would be preferable to go to Rome as a free man, not as a Roman prisoner. It would be preferable to go to Rome on your own timetable, do your own thing, have the freedom to visit people and minister along the way. Paul didn't want to go as a prisoner. So as long as there was opportunity that Felix, or a possibility that Felix would set him free, Paul was happy with that. He was going to sit on his hands and wait and let justice take its course, and eventually he would figure, Felix is going to get tired of having me here, he's going to get tired of our conversations, he's going to say, just get out of here and go free, and then I'll be able to go to Rome. But once Paul saw that he was being pushed into this corner, once Paul saw the bus coming and all everybody lining up behind him to push him out in front of the bus, he said, I appeal to Caesar. I'll plead my case before Caesar. Now, friends, what this shows us is a couple things that this demonstrates, this whole appeal process demonstrates to us. First of all, what we see here in the Apostle Paul in Festus' court shows us a proper Christian attitude toward government. You notice that? Paul exercises his rights as a Roman citizen. He has every right to appeal. He used the rights that were afforded to him. He used the, the platform that he had to present the gospel. He used the platform that he had to insist upon proper procedure. That's all right. That's all proper. But at the same time, you see his attitude, and it is one of submission. If I've done anything guilty of death, I'm not asking to get out of justice. I'm asking to have justice done. He was willing to submit to the government because he understood they are God's ordained authority in our lives for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And so he had that attitude of submission to authority, while at the same time he was entrusting himself to God and to Festus, trusting that good was going to be done and that right was going to come out of it, using his rights and having a right attitude toward authority, toward government. He modeled what he wrote in Romans chapter 13. You submit to them. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He is submitting to them. Listen, Christians should be the absolute best citizens that a country has. Absolutely, it's best citizens. It wasn't Paul and it wasn't Christians that were guilty of sedition in the Roman Empire. You know who it was? It was the Jews who were accusing Paul of sedition. They were the ones that were causing all of the revolts. It wasn't Christians that were doing that. Christians weren't revolting against the government. They weren't revolting against the oppressed. They were submitting to positions of authority. They were the good citizens. Eventually Nero would persecute them, and the Romans would hate them and try and kill them, but it wasn't because they were guilty of sedition. It's because they wouldn't worship Caesar. It shows us the proper attitude and role of a Christian in relationship to the government and to those in authority. Second, it shows us how the providential sovereign hand of God works. Remember Paul said to Paul, or the Lord said to Paul, as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you will testify for me in Rome. That was the promise. Any possibility that that could not happen? None whatsoever. Why? Christ said it. It was going to happen. 
And Paul wasn't worried about that. He knew what the outcome was. So how does God bring that to pass? Well, he takes Felix out of power and puts Festus in power. Right? He sets over at the lowliest of men, whomever he pleases, whomever he chooses. He simply takes Felix out of power, puts Festus in power, stirs up the Jews, and they bring accusations against Paul. He sees Paul getting pushed back into a corner. Paul makes the only decision he could make. I appeal to Caesar. Off to Rome he goes. All of, all of those workings, all of those details, all of that historical situation, every last detail and every last circumstance was administered by God in order to accomplish his sovereign will for Paul's life, which was to send Paul to Rome. He was going to take the apostle to the Gentiles and put him in the heart of the Roman Empire. Now, when Paul said, I appeal to, Fest, uh, to Caesar, what do you think went through Festus's mind? Think for a second. After all you've learned, what do you think went through Festus's mind? Whew. Man, am I glad that's over with. All of a sudden, Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, and everything Festus could want is handed to him on a platter. He is done with the Apostle Paul. It's out of his hands. He has tried to give to the Jews everything they've asked for, because he can go back to the Jews and say, I didn't see that one coming. I mean, I tried to do you guys a favor and get this change to Jerusalem, and he pulled out of his sleeve his citizenship card and started playing that on us. I didn't see it coming. I was doing my best to help you guys out. So let's talk about something else other than the Apostle Paul. Paul is out of the picture. He's somebody else's problem. And Festus looks like the hero to the Jews. And that's what they want. He can't do anything about it. They can't do anything about it. And when Paul said, I appeal to Caesar, I would have loved to see the face on all those Jews standing around him accusing him. What? Appeal to Caesar. He can't do that. Can he do that? Festus concurs with his counsel. Sure enough, it's a legal maneuver. He can do it. He's out of here. He's gone. Going to Rome. Out of my hands. <clears throat> but listen, even though Festus was, I think, quite relieved to be rid of the Apostle Paul, out of his courtroom, off of his docket, he's been in power less than a month, and he has dealt with this problem case. But the fact that the Apostle Paul is now somebody else's problem is in itself a problem for Festus. And you're going to see what I mean by that next week. He's not quite done with this problem Paul. There's some other little detail that's really got him in a corner. We'll see what that is next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ and for what we learn from your word. Thank you for the example that Paul was and is to us. Thank you for his demeanor, and we pray that you give us the grace to have that same type of demeanor and that same attitude. Thank you for what we learn about your providential hand and your goodness and your guidance of us. And we thank you that you are indeed sovereign that you work all things after the counsel of your own will according to your wonderful providence. We give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.